Now, if you have your Bibles, open them to the book of John. Uh, we are going to be finishing up the first chapter of that great gospel today. Uh, we will soon be reading from verses 35 through 51. I hope uh, over the last couple of weeks that the importance that our church leaders and that our church in general places on evangelism has been well noted. We just last week uh, talked about the importance of evangelism from the sermon and pointing people towards Christ. We've talked even before that in our community groups about a biblical vision and version of what evangelism looks like. Today, as we've already spoken of and we will speak of again, we are going to commission both Randy and Rick to go and preach the gospel to a people group who happens to be in a foreign nation, although it is a light foreign nation. They're really close to us, but Canada, at at any rate, there is a people group who is there who are not from Canada, and they are going to proclaim the good news to them, some believers, some hopefully unbelievers that we can proclaim the gospel to. We fund, we give money to this church, not only to support the ministry of the preaching of the word, but to support the things that help support that, to support a building, to support a yard or a lawn that we can gather in, to support a parking lot that we can park in. Those things are there not simply so that we would look good to the world, but there so that we can promote the preaching and the teaching of the gospel of God. We give so that we can send missionaries out, so that we can equip people to know how to proclaim the gospel and how to proclaim it faithfully. And even after that and beyond that, soon we will be sending out the Brubakers to China. Even as Doug is there this week, we will be sending them out to live there. Now, Doug is going there under the, under the auspices of working for a company, and he is going to do that, and he will do that faithfully, and I have no doubt that he will do that well. But he is not going over there, and he is not moving his family there simply so that he can work among the Chinese people in mechanical engineering. He is going there so that he can work among those people to help foster relationships there so that evangelization of those people by our church and the people of our church might go more easily and smoothly. We think that evangelism is important because it is necessary. It must be done. If we want the kingdom of Christ to come and to be fully known in the world, we must go and take the good news to the world. Matthew 24, 14 says this, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed according to Jesus throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That the fullness of the kingdom of Christ will never be known on this world until all of the nations hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet... And yet, we are not saying that evangelism is necessary and sufficient. It is not enough that we go and proclaim the good news to every man, woman, and child in this world. It is not enough for us to do that and to think that we are doing the work of God. It is not enough for us to drop the gospel in on people so that we can carry the dust off of our shoes and we can knock the dust off our shoes and wipe their blood off our hands and say, we are clear now because we have told you the gospel. Jesus didn't send us out simply to evangelize the world, but he sent us out to make disciples of the world. Matthew 28, the great commission, the great commission is not to go out and evangelize the world. The great commission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. That is the Great Commission. Our job as people under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not to go out and make sure that people hear the good news, but it is to go out and to gain followers and disciples for Jesus Christ. So it is important then 
that we have this wonderful picture of how this works in John's gospel. Before we really get to the meat of the ministry of Jesus, we have these two beautiful examples back to back for us. One of John the Baptist who faithfully points people to Jesus, and then directly after that, several pictures and wonderful examples of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is, after all, what John wants to do. He wants to point you to Jesus so that you would know that he is the Christ and then have you follow what he has commanded you to do. This is the whole purpose of John. And so when he begins his gospel, he sets it up this way. So today, as we read from verses 35 through 51, we're going to talk about four things that disciples are. We're going to have a picture here of what discipleship looks like and what we should look like, and what we are trying to gain in others. So let us read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him in to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John? You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He said to him, And truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of our God. Again, today we're looking at four things that disciples are. And the first thing we're going to find is that disciples of Jesus Christ are devoted to Jesus. Disciples are devoted to Jesus. Now this seems seems like it should be pretty Common sense, right? If you are a disciple of someone, that means that you're devoted to him. It's almost in the definition of what a disciple is, is that you're devoted to him. But I would say that in the church today, and especially in the evangelical world, that is not always how it is placed. It's not always how it's put. As Mark Twain or someone like him once said, nothing is less common than common sense. And so even if this is common sense, it is very uncommon in the world today to think that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be devoted to him, but you must be devoted to him. Andrew and this unnamed disciple, standing by John the Baptist, hear him call Jesus the Lamb of God. They, they take the hint and they begin to follow Jesus. 
John says that Jesus looks behind him and sees that they are following and asks them, what are you seeking? It's a really good question. So let me ask you, what do you seek when you come to follow Jesus? Why do you find yourself here? What are you looking for from Jesus? What can he give to you? What is the purpose of your following him? Andrew and this unnamed disciple have a good answer for that, but what is your answer for that? I'm telling you that the way you answer that question is incredibly important. As we track through the Gospel of John, John is about to engage on Jesus' ministry. And in the beginning of the book of John, we have what many scholars call the book of signs. There are seven signs that Jesus gives, seven miracles that he performs, that John writes down for us that point toward his Messiahship, that point toward him being the king, that point toward him being the lamb, that point toward him being God incarnate. There are seven of these signs, but these signs are repeatedly misunderstood and misused. So for instance, in John 2, 23 through 25, we read this. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And this is the whole point of the Gospel of John, that you would believe in his name. Those who believed in his name were given the right to become children of God. So it seems like this is a good thing. They believed in Jesus when they saw the signs. He performed miracles, he did things, and they said, this must be the one that we are to believe in. But verse 24 is incredibly important. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust that word, entrust there, is the exact same word for believe. So in other words, they believed in him, but he didn't believe in their belief. He didn't buy it. Because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is made a little bit more explicit later. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus leaves and goes around to the other side of the lake. The people wake up in the morning, they find Jesus isn't there. They trail him all the way across the lake. So they are showing devotion to him. They show up and they, they ask him some questions and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because you got your bellies filled is why you are following me. Later on in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, there's that word again, they believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That begins a dialogue between him and the Jews, which ends with those Jews who believed in him picking up stones and trying to kill him. Why did they do that? They believed in him as long as he didn't tell them anything that they didn't like. But the minute he told them that they were entrapped by sin, they didn't like it. And eventually it led to them denying him and trying to kill him. Why do you follow Jesus? Is it for the things that he can give to you? Is it because you think that he is something that the Bible doesn't hold him out to be? Why do you follow him? That matters. True disciples are devoted not to the things that Jesus can give, but they are devoted to Jesus himself. So these disciples then turn to Jesus and they say, where are you staying? Which seems like an odd question, as though they are inviting themselves over to his house, but that is exactly what they're doing. John has looked at this man and said, he is the Lamb of God, and they follow him, and they're asking him, can we spend time with you? We want to know who you are. All we know about you is that John told us about you, but we want to know who you are. Where are you staying? Can we spend time with you? 
And indeed, they do. They spend the rest of the evening with him. This was the 10th hour, which is probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So they likely went back to wherever Jesus was staying, had food, and sat down and spent time with the man. They were devoted to him. Continually throughout the Gospels, these people are leaving things behind so that they could be devoted to Jesus. John had an established ministry. John the Baptist was well known. They were disciples of his, but they left him to go follow somebody who was unknown. Repeatedly, repeatedly throughout the Gospels, they would leave friends, they would leave families. They would leave their own jobs in order to follow Jesus as he wandered around and had no hole to lay in and had, or foxes have holes, but he didn't have a hole, and had nothing to rest his head on. They followed him and did that because they thought being devoted to Jesus was more important than those other things. This is what disciples do. They leave other things behind, and they devote themselves to Jesus. It's easy enough for these disciples to do that, right? I mean, they, they can literally spend time with the man. They can say, hey, where are you staying? Let's hang out. We'll eat some dinner, we'll talk, we'll chat about Israel, about scriptures, we'll talk and chat about who you are and what you've come to do so that we can maybe understand you better and maybe follow you. They, they're, they're able to come and they're able to ask him questions and to spend time with him. How then can we do the same? How do we end up spending time with Jesus? If we're going to be devoted to him, what does being devoted to him look like? Well, it's not for nothing that John calls Jesus the word. And we talked about a possible meaning of that earlier in our preaching through the book of John when we go back to the very first sermon that we preached here. That had a specific meaning, but at the very least, it's important for John to equate Jesus with the word because the whole point of John is that you come to know Jesus and the way you come to know who Jesus really was is by reading the book of John. That's his whole point. John knows who Jesus is. He says, I saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. But he knows very well that while he is like 95 years old, he's about the last man on earth who can say that I actually saw the glory of Jesus Christ. I was an eyewitness to it. None of the rest of you were. None of you were. So what does he do? He decides to pen a gospel so that you might know and read what it was that he saw. The glory of Jesus in words. This is why John calls him the word. Do you want to spend time with Jesus? You spend it in his word. Jesus is the word. We can't see Jesus with our eyes, but we can see him in his word. We can't be with Jesus in our lives unless we are with him in his word. And so we read. We read the Old Testament so we can see the kind of things that Jesus was prophesied to be. We read the Old Testament and devote ourselves to reading it so we can see the kind of Messiah that we should expect. We read about Jesus in the Gospels so that we can see how he fulfills those things to better give us an understanding of what those things were that were promised. We read about him in the rest of the epistles and the letters of the New Testament so we can see how the early church and the apostles and prophets looked back on the life of Jesus and then back further on the Old Testament to try and describe for us the importance of what Jesus did and how he lived and what that means for our lives. We get to know Jesus. We get to spend time with Jesus. We get to be devoted to Jesus by being devoted to his word. So friends, pick up the word and read it. Study it. Don't spend the majority of your time reading about the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Reading about it is good. You should spend time doing that as well. Let teachers teach. People who write books are teaching. 
People who write good books are teaching well, read those things, but do not think that that ever replaces reading the word of God. You come to hear my sermons. I'm grateful for it. I like looking out and seeing people. That's nice, but that is no replacement for reading the word of God for yourself. That is how you meet Jesus. That's how you spend time with Jesus. And don't be fooled into thinking that you can be with Jesus through some more personal way. So Sarah Young, or Sarah, I think it's Sarah Young, I think I've got the name wrong on my notes, wrote a book called Jesus Calling. It sold like 15 million copies. This is from the introduction of that book. I began to wonder if I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more because, I'm guessing, she doesn't know how to read her Bible well. Nevertheless, because I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. And so her solution was to sit there with a blank mind, a pen and a paper, and she tried to listen to God. And she wrote down the things that came into her mind, thinking that it was God communicating with her and what she wrote down. Dude, God, there's a huge problem with that. There's a huge problem. How are you to know if what you're hearing is God talking to you personally or Satan or your dog, or your spouse? Is that conviction coming in your gut from the Holy Spirit? Or is it the burrito you ate last night? There is literally no way for you to know. You have no idea why it is that you're thinking the things that you're thinking. Good things can pop into your head. Bad things can pop into your head. How are you supposed to differentiate between what is junk and what is the Word of God? There's a very easy way. You have the Word of God. It's external to you. You don't have to worry about, well, is this really true or is this from Satan? No, it's, it's the word of God that has come down to us from, from the centuries. It is external to you. Now, you play a role in interpretation here, but you play a role in 2,000 years of interpretation where the Holy Spirit has worked among other people to help give the sense of the text. It's the same text that sits before you that sat before Athanasius and Augustine, Martin Luther and John Calvin, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. It sits in front of you the same way it sat in front of them. Get to know Jesus through the reading of the word. Secondly, I shouldn't say secondly, because that means that we're going ahead on the outline. We're not going ahead on the outline yet. There's another way that you can get to know Jesus, and that is by being with the church, believe it or not. Ephesians 1, the very last two verses, say something incredibly important. Paul talks about the fact that God has put all things under Jesus' feet and given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells or, or who fills all in all. That is an amazing verse. The church is the fullness of Jesus. Let's be very clear about that. Jesus, as a savior, is unfulfilled. He is incomplete until he actually saves people. Jesus, as Lord, is unfulfilled until he actually is Lord over people, his own people. He is not a king unless he has people to reign over. You are the body of Jesus. Paul talks like this endlessly. You are the body of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and in other places. You are the body of Christ. You want to know who Jesus is, interact with the church. They help describe and maintain the body of Jesus Christ. They are a picture of who Jesus Christ is. 
The Holy Spirit works in other people and he works in you and he describes and he helps us lead into knowledge and beauty of Jesus Christ. But you can get that from other people because they have read the word. They have spent time with Christ. The church is one of the best places to get to know and to be with Jesus Christ. And it's not just Paul who talks this way. In Matthew 18, something that we're going to talk about tonight in community groups, when it comes to discipline, when church members are disciplined, you go first to the sinner, and then you take the elders, and then you take the whole church. And what you're trying to do is to prevent unholiness from spreading in the church. You're trying to uphold the glory of Jesus Christ amongst his disciples, and you do that by enacting discipline. But what does he say at the end of Matthew 18? Where two or three of you are gathered, there I am in their midst. That is, when you try to do what Christ has led you to do, what Christ has commanded for you to do, he is there with you, walking with you. One of the greatest ways that you can come and to know him and to be with him is to walk with him in the church. Same thing with Matthew 28, the passage that we just read. And the Great Commission, go and baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded with you and... Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do what Jesus commands you in the church, and he is with you in the church. John talks like this. In chapter 14, verse 22, one of the disciples asks him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. They will be with you. Okay? Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So you want Jesus in you? You want Jesus and the Father to make their home with you? Well, then you better keep the word. What is that word? John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that you, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. To have Jesus with you means to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be with the church. Disciples are devoted to Jesus. Secondly, This is the actual secondly. Secondly, disciples are defined by Jesus. They're defined by Jesus. Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon. He brings him up. And Jesus says, oh, you are Simon, son of John. And what he does next is absolutely, totally inappropriate for anybody but Jesus. So I came here two years ago. Let's say I met Josh. I go up to Josh, I shake his hand. He says, hi, I'm Josh. And I say, eh, you're really more of a Carl. From now, on, from now on, you will be Carl, right? And he would look at me, and he would be polite and kind and say, no, no, I don't, I don't think so, right? Like, that, that is an incredibly arrogant thing to do. It's not, it doesn't even sound like Jesus is, like, giving him a nickname, okay? This isn't Dwayne Johnson being named The Rock, right? The way Peter is going to be named The Rock. That, that's not exactly what's going on here. Jesus is saying, that is your name. You are Simon Bar-Jonah. You are Simon, son of John, that's not, that's not it anymore. From now on, you will be known as Cephas, which is the Greek form of Peter, or the Aramaic form, excuse me, of Peter. You're going to be known as the rock. Jesus has the authority to simply rename people. But what we find, and again, John is writing his gospel 
in accordance with the other Gospels is that that name Peter means something. It's not just a nickname that is given to him. It is an occupation that Jesus has given to him when he names him Cephas, when he names him Peter, when he names him Rock. Because what happens in Matthew chapter 16? Who do people say that I am? And Peter stands up for the disciples and he gives an answer and then they say, who do you say that I am? And Peter again stands up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, and on this rock, on Peter, as the head of the apostles and the prophets, on those people, he will build his church. Paul says in Ephesians that the the whole edifice, the whole church is built on the preaching of the prophets and the apostles, the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. Just as Peter is the head of that, he is the rock upon which the temple of God and the church is built. See, Jesus looked at him and gave him the name because that was to be his occupation. That is to be what he was going to do. In Matthew 4.19, he meets, Jesus meets Andrew and his brother Cephas, or his brother Peter, or earlier, his brother Simon, and he says to this, he says, come on, follow me. You are fishermen, but I will make you fishers of men. He is totally redefining who Peter is. He's not just giving him a nice nickname. He's telling him what he is going to do and who he is. So when we say that Jesus is Lord, that means that he gets to tell us who we are. He gets to define for us our lives. It means he gets to tell us what we are to love and what we are to hate, what we are to do and what we are not to do. Our identity is forged by him. He gets to define it alone. That we are not having our identities formed and fashioned by our jobs, by our families, by our education, by our desires, by any sort of orientation that we might have, by our citizenship in America, by what college you went to, by any of those things. Your identity is not found in there. Your identity as a disciple is what Jesus Christ says it is. That is what it means for Jesus to be Lord. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, but you're not letting him tell you who you are, and you are living a life outside of what he claims that you ought to be doing, your confession isn't credible. It's fraudulent. You can't claim that Jesus is Lord and then not allow him to be Lord. Words don't work like that. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You cannot claim And you cannot confess that Jesus is Lord and not do what he asks you to do. He is Lord. And if you believe that he's Lord and you confess that he's Lord, you have to walk as though he is Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that people who do that do not sin. But there is a difference between somebody who is sinful and still thinks that Jesus is Lord and someone who is sinful and doesn't think that Jesus is Lord. We call it repentance. It's not so much whether or not you are going to sin, but whether or not you're going to repent. People who know Jesus as Lord know that he is a kind and a gracious Lord, know that if they sin before him, they can go before him and repent before him, that he will be quick to forgive and to establish them because he is a kind and a just Lord. 
People who don't know Jesus as Lord bury their sin. They hide it. They make it inconsequential. They brush it off and they throw it aside. They think that it doesn't matter much to them and so it doesn't matter much to anyone else. They do not repent because they do not know the Lord as Lord. Disciples are defined by Jesus. Thirdly, disciples are duplicated for Jesus. Disciples are duplicated for Jesus. We've talked about this before. We need to talk about it again. This is what disciples do. We have wonderful depictions of this in this text. John the Baptist, commissioned by God to come and point people to Jesus, does so, loses two disciples. Those two disciples go and they follow Jesus. What does Andrew do? Andrew goes and he says, hey, Simon, I've got somebody I want you to meet. Simon comes along. Jesus goes and gets Philip. What does Philip do? He goes and finds Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, I got this guy I want you to meet. I think that he is the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets. Everything that they wrote about this guy is. Time and time again, we have this depiction here specifically of somebody being called to Jesus and Jesus talking to them and them going out and saying, hey, you've got to come and see this Jesus guy. Time and time again, we have this picture put before us that disciples are people who are duplicated for Jesus. They make more disciples. Those other disciples don't look exactly like them. Philip seems to sign up immediately. Jesus says, come and follow me. And he tells Nathaniel, and Nathaniel has a very nice little quip about Nazareth. He seems dubious to say the best. Nevertheless, they duplicate one another. They make more disciples. And notice how they do it. Each one says something slightly different. There's not a set pattern for how they call other people to Jesus. John says, here is the Lamb of God. When Andrew goes and talks to Simon, he says, we've found the Messiah. When Philip goes and talks to Nathaniel, we say, we've found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. When Nathaniel understands him as such, he says, you are the king, the son of God. Each one of those designations is true, slightly different. There is no one way to bring people to Jesus. They go out and they proclaim him for who he is in many different and varied reasons, in many different and varied ways. There is no one way to point people to Christ. Disciples are duplicated for Jesus. Lastly, disciples are discerning about Jesus. They're discerning about Jesus. They understand who he is. They make, they make sense of who he is. Philip calls upon Nathanael in that little quip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth comes out of Nathanael's mouth? That is ethnic and social differences between Nazareth and where Andrew grew up. And there's some rivalry in that day. And there's probably a lot of uh, reliance upon scriptures that don't say anything about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, Jesus' sort of hidden origins in the Gospel of John is another theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John. No one really seems to understand where it is that Jesus has come from. Now, what Philip says is interesting. Nathanael says to him in verse 46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, Come and see. What an interesting response. Not arguing with him. No, 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 you don't understand. He told me this and he said this. He just says, Why don't I introduce you to the man himself? Listen, we can do well to listen to how Philip responds to Nathaniel's little quip here. He doesn't try to defend Jesus from negative perception. He rather allows Jesus to defend it himself. Sometimes we feel like we need to be apologists for Jesus before we just let Jesus be an apologist for himself. 
Listen, if somebody argues with you about the goodness of Christ or the, the, the beauty of Christ or how wonderful he is or what he claims to be, don't try to defend him. Take them to the book of Mark and say, I'll tell you what, why don't we find out for ourselves? Why don't we go and read the book of Mark? Why don't we go and read the book of Matthew and let Jesus and the, the apostles tell us who he is? Famously, C.H. Spurgeon said the following, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that where there are the most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I would suggest to them, if they would not object, and feel that it was too humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Take people to Jesus. Don't worry about defending Jesus for who he is. Don't worry about defending the word of God. Let the word of God defend itself. Okay? That doesn't mean that apologetics isn't important. It doesn't mean that being able to defend them against slander isn't important. But it does mean that the word of God can convert people. The word of God can change people much more effectively than you can, friend. Come and see. Nathaniel does come and see. Jesus says, truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile. It's a really important word because the original Israelite, notice he calls him an Israelite there. He doesn't say, here is a Jew in whom there's no deceit, but an Israelite. Israel was the changed name of Jacob. Hopefully, many of you remember how Jacob got the birthright in the first place by doing exactly what Nathaniel doesn't do. He deceives he pretends to be his brother because Isaac, his father, loved his brother Esau. He was a hunter, and so he, he sent Esau out to go kill some game for him before he blessed him and gave him the birthright that was due him. But Jacob comes in, and his mom says, Quick, here's some game. Take it to your father and, and wear the clothes of your brother and put hairy arm patches on because Jacob was smooth and Esau was hairy. And so he puts, I don't know, rabbit fur on his arm, and he goes, and Isaac... I don't know what Isaac was thinking, honestly. It seems ridiculous. Like he, he, he thought something was up. He, he smelled something up, but he still fell for it. And Jacob steals the blessing that Isaac wanted to give to Esau from him. There is no guile, however, in Nathaniel. Nathaniel not only says this little quip, but he is willing to go and see. Now, it's clear that when Jesus says this, Nathaniel takes it as more than what he seems to mean by it. He, he seems to imply in Nathaniel's head that Jesus actually knows him because he, he responds truly with great faith. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, which seems a bit much for just what he said there. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And notice what these greater things are. He said to him, truly, truly, I will say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, given the fact that he has already mentioned something that clearly is linked to Jacob, it is likely that this is from Genesis 28. 
And in Genesis 28, Jacob has an interesting vision. This is directly after he deceived his father into giving him the blessing. Esau is apparently, and frankly, rightfully, upset with his brother, and he threatens in his anger to kill him. And so Jacob's got to leave. Now, his mom sees this as a couple of things for advantage. One, he doesn't want Jacob to be taking a wife from the Hittites that are around him because they're driving her crazy. So she says, you're going to go to my father's land. But that gives you another reason to leave because Esau wants to kill you. And so Jacob is on the run from his brother. He thinks that his brother is coming after him, and he thinks that his brother is going to kill him. And given the fact that his brother was an expert huntsman, he's got reason to be fearful. Okay? Esau is the type of guy who can take you out at a couple hundred yards. So he's got real problems here. And in Genesis 28, he is running away, and he lays down, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching into the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring, back, I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This vision that God gave him was meant to do several things for Jacob. One, it is clearly to demonstrate, as God had prophesied that Jacob would be the chosen one and not Esau, it was to demonstrate that God is working behind the scenes even when we don't see him. Notice how Jacob says, God was here and I didn't know it. I didn't perceive it. It wasn't clear to me that God was here, but clearly he is here now. It is to demonstrate that God is working, sending his angels down to do his will, to protect him, to guide him, to keep him, to make sure that his promises will come true. The vision is meant to inspire Jacob to be faithful to him, regardless of what's going to happen in the future, because God will do it for him. The guile and the deception that he used before is unneeded now, because God will be faithful to him to make all of his promises come true. I will bring you back here. You will be safe. You will have many descendants, and I will give them all of the blessings that I promised to your father and your grandfather before him. And Jesus says, now, I will be that ladder. You are going to be Jacob. You are an Israelite, and you will see what's going on. He is the only way to the Father. He will be and enact all the promises of God so that all of the promises of God will be true. He will protect his people from falling away. Jesus is everything that was true for Jacob in that dream, everything that that dream meant to Jacob. He says, you will be able to perceive I am for you. In John 17, 6 and 12, Jesus shows that he protects his disciples, even as Jacob was running for his life from Esau. Now, as the disciples' lives are going to be in danger, Jesus will protect them. He says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
In John 5.19, Jesus performs the work of his Father to do what those angels were sent to do, to perform his will in the world. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Continually, as we already read from John 17 and other places, especially toward the end of John, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus keeps all of the things written about him so that the promises of God might come true. Now, if you read through the book of John, you will never find angels crawling up and down Jesus' back to literally fulfill what's being said here. What does John mean by it? What did Jesus mean by it? He meant that while it is blinded to everyone else, the disciples will understand what he is there for. He is there to provide a way to the Father. He is there to provide the work of the Father and to work out the will of the Father in the world. He is there to provide protection for his people from the world. These are the very things that that sign was given to Jacob for, and they're the very things that Jesus says, if you listen to me, if you hear what I'm saying, if you watch the things that I do and you understand them appropriately, these things will be manifest to you as well. And real disciples, are able to discern that. They are able to understand the truthfulness of what Jesus says there. Again, as you go throughout this gospel, there are many false disciples who want the signs for the food in their bellies and want the signs for the power of the sign. They don't want the sign for Jesus himself. We are not to be that way. Many in the gospel of John will see miracles. Many in the gospels see the miracles and they're able to explain them away. Many read about them, and they're able to explain them away. They see them as products of the devil. Oh, isn't it true that you have a demon, they say. They see it as falsehoods meant to keep men enslaved to religion. You're reminded of Mark's famous comment that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's meant to keep you stupid and weak. Many people talk about these miracles as though they're simply fairy tales to help weak people feel better Some people see these as simply ways to gain favor for themselves, but disciples are able to correctly understand the purpose of the miracles and the purpose of the signs that are to come. They discern that the miracles are to display the glory of who Jesus Christ is. They realize that the miracles are there to display the deity of Jesus Christ. They discern that the miracles are meant to foster our reliance upon Christ for all things. They discern that the miracles are meant to show us, like Jacob, that God would bring all of his promises to pass and that Jesus would indeed hold you fast and protect you from the schemes of the evil one. Above all that, he is doing so in his son, Jesus Christ. Disciples discern these things. And friends, this is the goal of our church. And it's easy enough to state it. The goal of our church is that we are the best disciples of Jesus Christ that we can be. And that we are leading others to be disciples as well. That's it. That is the glory of Christ seen in the world. We are to be the best disciples we can be, to be fully devoted in all of our ways and means to Christ, that we may be truly defined by Christ, that we might be faithful in duplicating ourselves for Christ, and that we would be wisely discerning precisely who Jesus Christ is. It's not hard to understand. Four very simple points. There's probably more, at least four from this text. Very easy to state, but hard work. It will take you lifting your cross daily to allow Christ to define who you are, to allow Christ to say what you are to do. It will take daily work from you to be a better disciple, to kill the sin that is in your life and to live to Christ, to be able to point others to Jesus Christ takes a lot of work from you. But that is what disciples do. 
and Christ is there to help you and to aid you. He is there to protect you and to work in you to bring about the ends for which he said, so don't lose heart. Forge ahead to be the best disciple you can be. O oh, church, as we will sing, let us arise, put our armor on, and hear the call of Christ our captain. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are thankful that he has come, died for us, and has risen again that we might be saved, forgiven of our sins, made right again. This is all of grace. But that grace, having been given to us, is a call for us to work. It is a call for us to do the things that Father, the Father has commanded us. It is a call for us to do the things that our Lord has called upon us to do, to love one another, to forgive one another, to go and make disciples for his glory and for his name. We pray, Father, that we would be the best disciples we can be, that your spirit will enable us to do so. We pray this so that Jesus might receive glory and honor and the inheritance of nations which he was promised. Be pleased to do this for his name's sake. Amen.